Glad to see you in the house of the Lord this morning. Stand if you're not standing. We stand here for the reading of the word. Just one scripture this morning. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8. And we're going to be speaking this morning on the eyes of grace. We talk about grace a lot around here. Not because that's the name of the church. We made that the name because we talk about grace so much. Amen. Good to hear Pastor Martin declaring that grace this morning. Genesis 6 and 8 is the first time in the Bible that the word grace appears. And uh, there's this principle of interpretation of the Bible called biblical hermeneutics. You don't have to remember that, but it's just sometimes we call it the law of first mention. And what that simply means is that the first time an important word is mentioned in the scripture, that in that mentioning of that word, we find its truest uh, key to its meaning. And then throughout the rest of the Bible, the Bible just unveils or unfolds or unpacks that meaning of that word. So it's significant that the first time the word grace appears is in this sentence that says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So that means grace has eyes. And if grace has eyes, grace has a face. And if grace has a face, whose face is it? It's Jesus. So in this first mention of grace in the old covenant, you had to find grace. But in the new covenant, grace finds us. Can somebody say amen for some good news? And so that's what we want to talk about this morning, if you'll pray with me. Father, we do thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the manifestation of your presence, your Holy Spirit that is in us, with us, indwells us. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Thank you for your presence and your people that have come, Lord God, to worship you in spirit and in truth. We bless you today. We thank you for your blessings on us. We thank you for your amazing grace. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. amen. You can be seated in the house of the Lord. You know, the term grace is used so often. You hear it so often in the church mentioned, but there's so much confusion as well about what grace actually is. And I, when I first got born again, I spent over two decades in the church before I ever was called into the ministry and began to preach the gospel myself. But never one time in over two decades did I ever hear one message on the grace of God. Now, you may have did, but I'm just giving you my story. In my situation, I would hear the term grace used every now and then, but when I would hear grace mentioned, it was always in a negative connotation. I would hear terms like cheap grace or we don't believe in that greasy grace. And I would hear those kind of things, and it, it had always made me think of grace as something that was a, was a negative thing, something that didn't really help us in our walk with God. And I realize that sometimes people use grace and they mention grace and they think of grace as their get-out-of-jail-free card. And, uh, but those people that feel that way about grace, they've never really met grace. They've got a concept, but they don't have uh, the understanding of who really grace is. Can you say amen? <clears throat> so grace is not a theology. And this is some stuff that we say around here a lot. It's not, a, it's not another subject of the Bible. It is the subject of the Bible. Can you say amen? And, 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 and as, as Pastor Martin has already said, we say around here a lot, it's, it's not a doctrine, it's a person. And what's his name? Jesus. Jesus. And the reason that's so important, because if you don't understand that, see, God wants us, he said, to receive the abundance of grace. We preached on that last Sunday. Because to have the abundance of grace is to have the person of grace, is to have an abundance of Jesus, abundance of the revelation of who Jesus is. 
in John chapter 1, verse 17, it says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was given, but grace had to come. Grace had to come. Jesus brought grace. He says grace and truth. And I realize that there's people today that try to separate grace from truth. That's like trying to separate wet from water. It's not wrong, and, and most of the church readily, readily accept that Jesus is truth. Because Jesus said, I am the what? The way, the truth, and the life. And so we accept, you know, you know easily that, that Jesus is truth. Well, I want to tell you, Jesus is grace. And when Jesus shows up, you have grace and truth both present. Truth is not in opposition to grace. Truth is what makes grace, grace. Can you say amen? You know, the Bible says, Titus 2 and 11 it says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to how many men? To all men. The word appeared there is where we get our word epiphany. It, it, it explodes with light. Those that sat in darkness, it said, saw great light. It says, for the grace of God that brings salvation. Who brought salvation? Who is salvation? We can read that verse like this. For the, for the Jesus of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And so people who don't understand what grace is, or rather who grace is, they have a tendency to either misuse it or either they attack it. And grace for me, just personally for me, was a revelation of the absolute acceptance of God. It was a revelation to me that I am and was and always will be completely forgiven by God. And that I'm not going to be righteous one day that I'm righteous now and always, not based on my performance, not based on who I am or what I do, but based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Uh, before I knew, really, uh, I, I knew that I was saved by grace. I, I've read the scripture. I was told I'm saved by grace through faith. But to me, it was more of a theological head thing than a heart experiential thing. I, I, now I enjoy my salvation. I enjoy uh, Jesus more now than I ever have in all my life. If I could stick myself in a time capsule and go back 30 years and get this revelation, I would feel like I'd be a little further down the road. How many can say amen to that? Amen. To me, it was like, you know, I liken it to a cloudy day versus a cloudless day. To me, it was like, you know, both of them are day. So in other words, both of them are saved. But one just doesn't have the full revelation of the Son. And I'm not talking about that Son. I'm talking about the Son, the Son of God. And so I knew I was saved, and I knew I was saved by grace. But then it, then it was thrust upon me to be uh, maintain that by my works, by my confessions, by the things that I would do and keep up with. And so not only was I trying to obey and keep the law, but I was also trying to obey and keep the religious rules of the Christians that I hung with. In other words, you got to read your Bible every day. You got to pray every day. You got to have your quiet time. And I'm not saying anything is wrong with those things. Those things are good, you know. But to me, praying and reading the Bible and fasting, all those things was really, if you're honest, if I was honest, was, was ways to earn points with God, trying to be more pleasing. In other words, I always wanted to please God, not knowing that I had already pleased God because God's pleased with Jesus. That that I'd already been accepted by God, that he had accepted me in the beloved. The beloved is his son. And, and I would do those things in a way to make myself, I thought, worthy to, 
to, to be a vessel. I always heard that, you know, you need to be a vessel fit for the master's use. And I would, I would work hard at being a vessel fit. And so no matter how long I prayed, as soon as I got up, the thought would hit me, I could have prayed more, should have prayed more. And so you never know when you've done enough. And, and so, so some say that they, you know, well, Brother Dale, you know what? I mean, I believe in the grace of God. But, but to me, they don't seem to be blown away by the goodness of God's grace. They sing amazing grace, but they don't seem to be amazed by God's grace. If they're amazed by grace, notify your face. <laughs> I mean, really, to some, grace means they're free too. But to me personally, grace, to me, the revelation of God, grace meant that I'm free from. Not free to. Free from what? See, some people are afraid that if you have grace, you'll be free to do this, free to do that, free to sin is really what they're saying. But I'm free from. Free from what? Free from the law. I've been redeemed from the curse of the law of sin. I, I, I've been free from performance. I've been set free from my own labor. I've been free now to just rest in the finished work of Jesus that he did on the cross. And so since I've been preaching about grace so much now, I mean, I mean hard at it for three years plus. I'd really say five, but I'll just be conservative and say three years. You know when you walk in here, you're going to hear the word grace. You're going to hear something about the grace of God, right? And uh, if you don't like the grace of God, guess what you ain't going to like? You ain't going to like Grace Point. But best I can tell, more folks are coming. Since I've been preaching the revelation of God's grace, you know what I've seen? I've seen this church right here come alive to the goodness of God and what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Can somebody say amen? I, 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 it affects our whole view of how we see God, and, and it affects our love for Jesus. And what it has done in this house is made us more accepting of others, more forgiving, and absolutely more peaceful in our, in our soul. Can somebody give God praise? And so for me... When I preach the grace of God, it's not so much that I'm explaining it as, I'm, as I am proclaiming it. To me now, for the first time, I feel like I'm making an announcement, like you just won something. I mean, you're just, I'm, I'm making an announcement of good news. I'm not here giving you good advice. The world gives you good advice, but the, the gospel is good news. And, and so what, I'm, what are you announcing? I'm announcing that you're forgiven. I'm announcing that you're loved. I'm announcing that, that you just go ahead what God says. Be reconciled to God because he's already reconciled himself to you. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 and 19 says, that God was in Christ and God reconciled the sin of the whole world unto himself. And what's amazing to some people to find out, and if you're the first time here hearing about the grace, you may be thinking I'm speaking a little bit of heresy here because you're so accustomed to rules and regulations and the law. But God has already forgiven every human of their sin. God was in Christ. Did Jesus behold the Lamb of God that took away sin? Did he take it away or did he not take it away? Did him who knew no sin, did he really become sin so that we could become the righteousness of God? Did he take sin away? Well, if he took sin away, why, why do you think that he's punishing you for yours? I'm not saying there's not consequences to sin. Of course there is. If I go down and rob the bank, I'm going to end up in the jailhouse. But that don't mean God did it. Don't get mad at him because the spirit is stupid come on you. Come on now. It's not God punishing you. God's already punished you for that sin. He, Jesus didn't become sins on the cross. He became sin. He paid for all sin. If we would understand that the forgiveness of sin does not come by confession, it comes by bloodshed. 
The only commodity that removes sin is the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And Jesus Christ has shed his blood how many times on the cross? Are you expecting to come back and die on the cross again? Then that means he forgives of all sin, past, present, and future. If he don't forgive for future sins, then in the future he's got to come back and pay for the ones he didn't pay for last time. When Jesus said it is finished, did he mean it or was he just kidding? Did he finish it or he said it's not finished? Is God's forgiveness a debit card or did God just pay it in full, tear up the note? Come on, somebody. <clears throat> I better get back to my notes. I feel they go shorter if I'll hang closer right here. All you have to do is to receive the forgiveness, the reconciliation, to enjoy the benefits of it. God's already forgiven. That's why God's not angry. When I tell people that God's not angry with anybody, even sinners, people get angry with me. Because they, somehow they want an angry God. God was angry in the Old Covenant. He said that he was angry, but when he gave prophet Isaiah the revelation of the crucifixion in Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 54, he says, when this new covenant comes, he said, I swear to you that I will never be angry with you again, nor will I ever remove my love for you ever. Now, is God a liar? Is God the truth? God said, I will never be angry. So people run around preaching an angry God. I mean, I appreciate these brothers, you know, at the Great Awakening, but sinners in the hands of an angry God, bad message, bad title. You can't scare the Hades out of people and get them converted. It's the love of God that calls men to repent. The goodness of God is what leads men to repentance, not dangling them over hell on a rotten stick. Grace has stopped me from navel-gazing, always taking my temperature to see if I'm right with God. Get right with God. I never try again to get close to God. I used to hear those things, well, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. And so what the preacher didn't know he was telling me was that I wasn't near to God. And I thought he was telling me the truth because I didn't feel very close to God. There's days I wake up and I don't even feel saved, but I know I am. Sometimes people make me so mad I don't think I'm saved, but I know I am. Come on, somebody. Because I'm not saved by Dale, I'm saved by Jesus. I'm not saved by anything I've done, I'm saved by what he's done. And, and, and so, you know... We read this, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. That verse says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Sinners are not close to God. Sinners are outcasts out of the commonwealth. They're, they're strangers. They're far away from God. Paul said that in Ephesians. But he said, all of you now have been made nigh, near. To, to, by, the what? by the blood of Jesus Christ, you have been made nigh, King James. So let me say it like this in bad grammar. If I've been made nigh, there's nothing I, by the blood of Jesus, there's nothing I can do to make myself unnigh. I may not look close, I may not feel close to God, but I'm in Christ. How would it be to say I'm not close to this building? You're in the building. How can you not be close to this church when you're in the church? How can you not be close to Jesus when God placed you in Christ? If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Don't go by your feelings. Go by faith. Go by the word of God. Go by what God says. I don't care if I feel like God's a million miles away. Well, that's a bad feeling. That's a lie. The devil is a lie, and so is his mother-in-law. Come on, somebody. <laughs> You're close to God because God put you in Christ. You know, when I, uh, so I, I mean, it stopped me from trying to be right with God. Come to the altar, get right with God. I'm, I'm right with God because, because God is put me in Jesus Christ. 
My wife's sitting on that front row there. I've been married to her almost 37 years. Man, she's a good woman. I know you're thinking to put up with me. I didn't say that. <laughs> but she has loved me. And when I look in them little hazel green eyes, and she's loved me, and she's been, she has taken care of this boy right here. Never one time in 37 years has her love for me ever made me think, you know what? She loves me so much I can do anything I want to now. I can just go out and sleep with whoever I want to and do anything I want to because she's just going to love me forever. See how stupid that is? It'd be like a man and a woman getting married and somebody hears the covenant. You know, because really in a marriage covenant, you're saying you're never going to leave the person. You said for better or for worse. A lot of people lie at marriages. You said for better or worse, but you have a definition of worse and you have a limit to worse, but God doesn't. In other words, God made a covenant with us because he made a covenant with himself. And God entered into that relationship with us based on the covenant that he made with himself in regard to us. God promised God. That's what the Bible teaches. And that he would never leave us, that he would never forsake us, he would never abandon us. And, and so it'd be like a person getting married and then somebody coming up out of the, out of the congregation and talk, telling to the husband, hey man, now that she promised you she'd never leave you and she'd be with you to death, you can go out and sleep with as many girls as you want to because you're in covenant now. You'd go, man, go back to your seat. That's stupid. You know, that's how stupid it is for the religious people to run around and say, man, people that you know, believe in all that grace, I mean, they can just go out and sin and do anything they want to. You miss one little factor. You miss in love with Jesus. It's not your rules and regulations. I've never had to break out the rule book to make me go home to be with Jill. It's my love. I don't need a commandment, thou shalt not do this and thou shalt not do that. My love tells me not to do that. See, when you sin against God, you're not breaking rules, you're breaking hearts. Come on now. I've heard so many terms about grace. I've heard amazing grace. I believe in that. Lavish grace. I like that one. Abundant grace. Forbidden grace. Hyper grace. Now, I want to say something about that one just a little bit. Hyper grace is a word that's being thrown around a lot, thrown around a lot today as a negative. Usually if you hear hyper grace, you know, you got to be careful with these hyper grace preachers. Got to be careful with these hyper grace theology. And what they're saying is that's grace carried too far. I don't hear nobody hollering and complaining about hyper love from God or hyper forgiveness. That's carrying love too far or forgiveness too far. But, but grace, oh, I hyper grace. I'd be more afraid about the hypo grace preachers. Hyper means above, by the way. Hypo little medical here, hypo-grace preachers are the ones that dilute and diminish grace by mixing it with the law. It's a mixed drink. It's a mixed concoction. Jesus said you can't mix new wine with the old wine. You can't mix the, the new covenant with the old covenant. It brings destruction. And so hyper-grace, where we get that from? Romans 5 and 20, Paul said that where sins abound, grace doth that much more abound. The Amplified said grace superabounds. The Greek that they got this from, that they translated grace much more abounded, means that grace super hyper abounded. Can somebody say amen to the Greek? That's what it means. So the, the word hyper grace is absolutely a biblical term. It's a biblical expression. And for so somebody to suggest that grace is anything less than hyper is absolutely unbiblical and borderlines on blasphemous. It's, it's like saying that God's good, but he ain't really that good. Or God is holy, but he ain't really that holy. Or grace is good, but it ain't really that good. Grace is 
extremely good. Grace is super good. Grace is hyper good. The Bible says where sin abounds, the word abound there means it can be counted. You could actually tally it up. You could count it and report your number. But where it says grace did super abound, much more abounded, it means it cannot be counted. In other words, God says that grace is bigger than your sin. Come, in other words, we could say it like this, that, that sin is finite. But God's grace is infinite. Can you say amen? Y'all just let me know when I say anything that's good news for anybody. See, listen, there, there, there is uh, all these terms, you know, uh, for grace, but I want to tell you that one that really stands out to me above all the other terms or the expressions or descriptions of grace is this term that you hear sometimes is called scandalous grace. Anybody ever heard that? Scandalous grace. First off, we need to start and define what does the dictionary say scandalous means. It says it means shocking. It means improper. It means general public, listen to this, outrage by a perceived offense against morality or law. That's what scandalous means. And so that describes God's grace. Because it's hard to accept, it's hard to believe, and it's hard to receive. Why? Because grace shocks us at what it offers us. It's too good to be true. And, 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 and that's why it's grace. I used to hear these expressions, and many people have made them, and many famous preachers have been recorded making this statement, that as a preacher of the gospel, of the good news of God, the gospel, that's what it means, good news, that if, if, if me as a preacher, if I'm not challenged by the, by, in other words, if I'm not, people don't challenge me on, on my theology about grace, then I'm not preaching the grace that the apostle Paul preached. If I'm not opening myself up to misunderstanding like Paul did, because Paul would preach about the grace of God, and they would say, well, if it's like you say, then why don't we go sin the more? And Paul would always have to say, God forbid, taterhead. No, he would just say, God forbid. Because when he would preach God's grace, he preached it so good, they would say, well, it's, if that's just too good. I mean, we can just do anything then if I hear you hearing you right. And over and over, Paul had to defend his theology of the grace of God. For the first time in 30 years of preaching, these last three to five years, I've had to defend what I preach. Not because that they're saying it's too bad. It's just too good to be true. And we're afraid that people will just run rampant. They are running rampant right to Jesus. <laughs> you know, this term that scandalous, I think, is the term that fits how Jesus dealt with sinners better than any other term. And what it does to the church, listen to me, it, it, it frightens us. It's too good to be true, yet it is true, and that's why it's called grace. It, it, we don't deserve it. And let me tell you this. God's grace is not of this world. It is truly anotherworldly. In other words, it, it comes from God. God sits on the throne room of grace. He tends to come how to that throne room? Boldly. Boldly to the throne room of grace. And so grace, it frightens us because what it does for sinners and, and what it does with sinners. Grace shows us that God, listen, that God does for others what we would never do for them. In other words, we would save the not so bad, what we would consider not to be so bad. But God gives grace to prostitutes. 
God forgives people in the Bible that never even asked for his forgiveness. Like the man they lowered through the roof to get his healing. He didn't come for forgiveness, but the first thing Jesus, and the man ain't ever said nothing to Jesus. He didn't repent, confess, cry. He didn't say a word to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, he said, son, your sins are forgiven you. Because the key to you receiving your healing is just know that I'm not holding any grudges against you. I'm not angry with you. I'm not punishing you. I didn't put this disease on you. It's not because of me that you're paralyzed. And if you can understand that I'm not angry with you and you've been forgiven, then maybe you can freely receive the grace of your healing. The woman caught in adultery, she never cried and repented or done anything or said anything. But Jesus said, I don't have any condemnation for you. That means he's forgiven her. You say, well, he told her to go and sin no more. He sure did. But what we do in the church is we get it backwards. We tell them to go and sin no more, and then we won't condemn you. But Jesus said, no matter what you do, I don't condemn you. Now go in the power of that gift of no condemnation and go and sin no more. Because I love you, and I don't want you to hurt yourself and do harm to yourself or to other people. You know, God's grace, we can't understand it. We can't understand and this is what I hear people say, you know, God's grace is not fair. You ever heard favor is not fair? That's really what they're saying. Grace is not fair. And so where the church thinks it's not fair is we can't understand how a prodigal son can return home after blowing his inheritance on wine, women, and song. How he couldn't wait for his dad to die and demanded his inheritance. Like, I can't wait for you to die. So how about give me my money? I, want, I, need, I need the money now. I've been waiting on you to die, but best I can tell you, you're going to live a while, and I need to go party. And he blows every bit of his dad's inheritance. Come on now, I, just let me know if I say something in the Bible. He blows every bit of his dad's inheritance, and, and then and when he returns back home, he's not even rebuked by his father. His father will not even allow him to go through his rehearsed confessional. He is given the best robe, he's given shoes to declare he's no longer a slave, he's given a ring which means he can charge the dad's account again, and not only that, a party is thrown in his honor. And besides that, his, fa his father ran to meet him, didn't sit on the porch and wait till he made it up there, and said, I knew you'd come back one day. His father runs to meet him, falls on his neck, and kisses him while he's smelling like a pig pen. How you get a theology of an angry father out of that? There's not a hint of anger in him. Only people get angry is the good people that stayed at church while the brother was out partying. That's the other brother. From another mother. Mother called religion. We don't understand. We think Jesus is looking for good people. We think good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus ain't looking for good people or bad people. He's looking for new people. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. God or the devil going to kill the old you just to get to decide which one does it. Choose wisely. Your old self died with Christ at the cross. You were crucified with Christ. Jesus not only died for you, he died as you. You died with him. You were buried with him. You were resurrected with him. That's why you have power over sin. Because you're not under law any longer. You're under grace. Can somebody say amen? amen. This, this boy that comes home, he's not punished. He's not rebuked. 
He's given all these things. You know what that is? That's some hyper grace right there, buddy. <laughs> That's hyper grace on steroids. Listen, grace is counterintuitive. It, it works against our mind. It turns everything that makes sense to us upside down. It, it's not rational. It doesn't make sense. It, it offends our deepest sense of justice and what's right. And that's why it's really a good definition to call it scandalous. If you want to make people mad, preach the law. But if you want to really, really, really make them mad, preach grace. I'm talking about religious folk. The law offends people because it tells them what to do. And best to tell, I can tell most people hate being told what to do. Okay, but grace offends people even more than that because what grace does is it tells them there's nothing you can do. There's nothing for you to do that Jesus Christ has done it all on the cross, that he's paid for it all, he's finished it all, and he's done it all on the cross. And all you have to do if you want to call this a to-do is to receive by faith that grace. Can you say amen to that? And see, if there's something that we hate more than being told what to do, it's being told that we can't do anything, we can't earn anything, that we're really helpless, weak, and we're needy, and we need a Savior like Jesus Christ. Some people don't understand why Jesus did what he did because they don't understand who he really was. He did what he did because of who he was. He did what he did because he was grace. Luke 15, verse 1, 2, and 3 says this, then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him, to hear him. There was something about Jesus that attracted sinners, not repelled them. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained. They're still in the church today. They don't go by the names Pharisees and scribes, but they're still here and they're still complaining. They are saying this, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Oh my, <laughs> he eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying. So in other words, Jesus hears their accusation, and in response to what they said, this is what he told them. That what they're saying was, he's soft on sin. Look at him. Look at how he hangs out with sinners. And so Jesus replied to that accusation with three stories. Most of you are really familiar with this, and I'm not going to have the time to read the verses or go through it. But, I, but here's how the church says the three stories are. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Literally, we could say the lost sons. Because that parable of the lost sons or prodigals starts out with this verse, for a man had two sons. God wants you to pay attention. And in fact, that second son that didn't go out and live righteous, he was in worse condition than the one that did. A sinner knows they're sinning. You don't have to tell them. If they're in the strip club hanging out single dollar bills, they know they're in the sinning. You don't have to go in there and preach sin to them. But it's those that's in the church that's trying to save themselves through their goodness. Them's the ones that don't know that they're sinning. Because the garden tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's your goodness that's keeping you from God. You have to relinquish your goodness and behold his righteousness. Your goodness, our righteousness is like filthy rags before a holy God. Three stories, lost sheep, lost corn, lost son. But that's not really what Jesus, the story is about. That's what your Bible says they're about, up in, above the paragraphs, in the King James anyway. But what they're really about is the Son, Jesus, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the Father, God the Father. 
That's what those three stories represent. The story about the lost sheep is really the story about the good shepherd who goes and looks and finds that lost sheep. And when he finds that sheep, he throws it upon his shoulders and carries it back to the fold. That's a good shepherd. I remember when we were in Fontana, I think it's North Carolina, many, many years ago. My youngest son just grown now and got children of his own. But he was how old, Jill? Three? Around three years old. And her family was having a family reunion at this Fontana village near Fontana Dam. So all her family from out west was there. We was having a wonderful time. And we looked around all of a sudden, and Brother Austin was gone. And he was missing, my youngest son. So where's Austin? Nobody couldn't knew. And I want to tell you, I will never forget that feeling of panic and fear and dread. And because that was a huge place. And we began to look. And, and we had Justin, anybody seen Austin? No, nobody had seen Austin. And I remember just started, I just started running, running, screaming his name. Austin, Austin. And there's houses and cottages and all kind of things. And this Fontana Village, this big resort. And I'm running everywhere. Jill's going in separate direction. And Justin was old enough. He was out looking for his little brother. And we were just looking at hard. And, and, and I remember, and I mean, time's going by. I mean, 30 minutes, 45 minutes. And I remember thinking, and then all these thoughts, did he get abducted? Did somebody take him? Did he, did he fall somewhere? Did, you know, did, did he wander off into those woods and those North Carolina mountains? You know, what, what, where's my son? And I, I will never forget that feeling of just running in desperation. And I remember getting tired of running and just calling his name. And, but then I remember if I stop running, then I've got to admit something else. I might have, I've got to admit that I can't find him. Maybe I won't find him. So I wouldn't stop running. I just kept running. And before long, we, we saw him coming out of one of the cottages, you know, some distance away. And a little girl that was older than him, he's three, and she was probably seven or eight had carried him to their cottage to you know, play with toys or whatever, you know. That wouldn't be the first girl that would lead him off uh, <laughs> like that. <laughs> and, uh, amen, a lot of good men have been led off uh, <laughs> by some good women. But I remember when I saw him, when I saw him, and I was running, and I ran and grabbed him. No rebuke, no, no, no spanking, picked him up. I didn't say, You've been, you've, you might, you walked all this far. Well, you just walk your little butt back. No, I picked him up and I wouldn't turn him loose. I wouldn't turn him loose. I wouldn't let him out of my sight until we left North Carolina the rest of the trip. (laughs) Because I was so glad to have my son back. At least in maybe a microscopic way, I feel what God feels about his lost sheep. When they wander from him, they walk away from him they are led away by sin God's not away from them they are away from him and enjoying his presence but he goes after them and then they talk about a lost coin she lights a candle and she searches the Holy Spirit will help us to find the lost that's the illumination of the Spirit of God. And then, of course, the one that's so for me, the prodigal son, by the church calls it that story, about this son that, that goes and blows the inheritance and the lost son. But that's about not a son, but a good father. It's about how the father responds to sons that come home. They may smell like pigs. They may have been gone a long time to a faraway place. But the father is looking for them every day longing for their return. And so this boy 
He said, I have sinned. Remember his rehearsal confession? I have sinned against heaven and against you. And this is what he says in his rehearsal speech that he's going to tell his dad. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Uh-oh, time out. Pause the tape. I have an issue. I need a tissue. I am now no longer worthy. My question is, when did you ever think you was worthy? See, it is the thought that you, were, you and I were ever worthy is the problem. Well, the Lord won't heal me because I'm not worthy. You've never been worthy for that. But Jesus is worthy and paid it. So come freely, receive your healing. I'm not worthy. You don't know what I've done. Jesus knows everything you've done. Are you, are you accusing him of not being omniscient? Sure he knows everything. He's already forgiven you. Come and receive the gift of salvation. When did we ever think we were worthy? You, you get in the kingdom by birth, not by your worth. Amen? We got to look at this brother, though. Luke 15, 28. The older brother, the brother that stayed home. You know, there is a passage in the Jewish rabbi's teachings I just offer this as just something to think about. But they say that in the Jewish family, because some people wonder, why didn't the father go look for him? The father was looking for him. It's an assumption to believe the father wasn't having people out looking for him or whatever. But let me tell you who Jewish custom says was the main person that was responsible to go look for his younger brother. It was the elder brother. The elder brother is charged with the responsibility for the children. Jesus was the elder brother of many siblings. He was responsible for their care after his dad Joseph passed away. And so now this elder brother should have left the dad and all that was going on there and went out and searched until he found his younger brother. But there's something interesting in the story. He never left home and he never went and looked for him because all he could see was his brother's sin and his anger and that he took the money in. That's all he could see. But I want to tell you another elder brother that we sinned against our father. And our father didn't leave his place, but he sent his son, which is our elder brother, Jesus. And he left home. And he came and he looked for us until he found us. In the old covenant, Noah had to find grace. But in the new covenant, grace came and found us. <laughs> Come on, give God praise. Bible says in Luke 15 and 28, but he was angry, this older brother. He would not go in. Therefore, his father came out. I love that. He wouldn't come in, but the father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, lo, these many years I have been serving you. That's the problem. You ever heard saved to serve? You're not saved to serve. You're saved because God loves you and you was dying. We serve God. Yeah, my wife serves me, but I didn't marry her to serve me. I married her to love me, and out of her love for me, she serves me. Sure, we serve God, but not from a slave mentality, not master-slave. Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. I want you to sit at the Father's table, be a son, and be a daughter of the Most High, and know what God's up to. So he said, I've been serving you all these years. And then he says this, which I suspect is a lie. He said, I never... Aren't we supposed to not say never? 
I never transgressed your commandment at any time. I, I'm going to have to say I doubt the brother on that one. Just knowing human flesh. Anybody with me? I never transgressed your commandment at any time. Come on, man. Come on now. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. Now you're jealous. But as soon as this son of yours, not this brother of mine, he doesn't say this brother of mine. He says this son of yours. He said he ain't even my brother. When this son of yours came, who has, by the way, devoured your livelihood with whores, harlots. Is it okay to read? You killed the fatted calf for him. So in other words, the father is, that's not fair. This ain't fair. Fair comes around in October. Be out at the mall in case you want to go. This is not fair. It's grace. Grace does what we would never do. It forgives. It welcomes. It don't hold sin against them. And he said to him, the father says, son, you're always with me. And all that I have is yours. That's the problem with the modern church. We don't know what we have. And we don't know what we've been given. And we don't know what Jesus really accomplished on the cross. So what do we do in the modern church? We pray and ask God to go with us from this place. As if he's a liar and if he lives here. And, it, and, and he, when he didn't mean it when he said, I'll never leave you, never forsake you. Even when you commit sin, he's right there. We pray for the mind of Christ. We ask you for the mind of Christ. When, God, when Paul said that we have the mind of Christ, you've been given that. You may not be using it, but you got the computer when you got born again. You was given the mind of Christ, and you still have your natural mind. It's up to you which hard drive you access. But don't pray for what you have. We still got some trying to pray for an open heaven. Oh, Lord, we pray for an open heaven today. They don't know that they've been given an open heaven. That Isaiah 64 and 1, in the heavens, has been fulfilled. Jesus did come down. God came down in the form of Jesus and ripped the heavens apart like a scroll. But yet we're praying for things that we've already been given because we don't know what we have. We're like that elder son. We're just sitting there at the house trying to do good and be good and sit there and we, don't, we have not because we ask not. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, real familiar verse. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved, have been saved, through faith, it's not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Listen to me as I close this. Never get faith in front of grace. Always keep grace in front of faith. Faith is simply minding your response to God's amazing, abundant, lavish, scandalous grace. It is by grace that God has saved us. Jesus brought grace and he also brought truth and he wasn't kidding himself. And it wasn't like that we sinned and he said, well, don't worry about it. It was like you sinned and you got fined and I got to pay the fine. But I'm going to pay it in full and I'm going to release you. I'm going to reconcile you to myself. I have forgiven you and I'm pleading with you to plead with me through you as ambassadors for Christ. Be ye reconciled to God. Because he's already reconciled himself to you. Do you receive the message? Aren't you glad for the grace of God? Would you stand to your feet this morning?